Okay, let's go ahead and uh, get started so we can get through the second uh, half of our topic for tonight. So with, with, the, uh, with the first session, <clears throat> now that I've kind of gotten all the encouraging, pleasant, happy things out of the way, we're going to get kind of negative now. I hope you don't, I hope you don't mind. Um, So I'm calling session two, Satan, the Antichrist, and the Grand Conspiracy. And what I'd like to do in this uh, session is really provide the biblical basis for this whole topic and uh, for the book. So uh, the first two or three chapters of the book, I'm kind of condensing tonight. Obviously, I can't uh, get into all of it. We have a whole section in the book on angels and demons and kind of the history and how that plays as part of the conspiracy. But... I can at least kind of give you the basic framework of uh, this grand conspiracy, or what Ralph Epperson in his book, The Unseen Hand, calls uh, the conspiratorial view of history. And a uh, good book to have on your shelf. He also wrote a book called The New World Order, which common name, but uh, really one of the best treatments of that uh, subject. So I want to start this session with uh, establishing the premise. In other words, what do we mean by spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception? And so for that, let's go to the book of 1 John, where John tells us, little children, it is the last hour. I'll say more about that in a second. As you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many Antichrists, little a, have come, by which we know it is uh, the last hour. We're also warned that evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, as I said in the first session, deceiving and being deceived. The premise, back to 1 John, of this entire series and the book comes from 1 John 4.3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming. You've heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming uh, and is now already in the world. So the spirit of the Antichrist is already uh, in the world. But Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This again is in the context in 2 Thessalonians 2 of the Antichrist. And Paul's discussion of the man of sin, the son of perdition. Uh, so uh, he says, little children, it is the last hour. Now in scripture, we need to understand the biblical terminology the last hour and the last days are used interchangeably, and both of them refer to the present age. So there is a difference between the end times, which is Bible prophecy and unfulfilled future events, and the last days. We are living in uh, the last days. So if you go back to my end times chart, the last days is the present church age. The end times begins with the rapture and encompasses everything up into the new heavens and the new earth. So, and, and it makes sense when you think about those terms, when you look at God's a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages. So again, if we go back to uh, creation at what we would now say is 4004 BC based on the Julian calendar, we see uh, the Garden of Eden, the age of conscience, human government, promise, law, the church, which is the age which we're living now, and it's the last days because the only age to come is the kingdom. In other words, in God's plan of the ages and in God's sovereignty, He's chosen for you and I to be alive in this last age before the kingdom is coming. Now, the church was a mystery, and we don't know how long it will last. Uh, it's lasted 2,000 years roughly so far. The early church thought it, he was going to come back in their day. There was a great expectancy of the return of Christ. Uh, and they certainly taught and believed imminency. Imminency meaning could happen at any moment. Imminency doesn't mean soon. It means could happen at any moment. And so uh, it's conceivable, at least theologically, that the church age could go on for hundreds of years more. But I don't think so. When you look at all of the signs of the times and you look at the setting of the stage and you see how things are playing out, it sure seems like uh, it's probably going to be soon. But regardless of when it happens, we can say with biblical certainty that we are living in the last days. This is the last age. And what does the Bible tell us about these last days? That perilous times will come. So again, 
It is the last hour. We're talking about today, right now, this present age. And what do we know about this Antichrist who is coming? Well, the biblical term is Antichristos. It's used only five times in Scripture. Uh, and it means false Christ, uh, meaning one who's trying to take the place of Christ and demand his worship. Satan is very ambitious. But it also means anti-Christ, someone who is against Christ, that is, who hates Christ and wants to kill him. And I really think, though, of course, context always has to determine meaning, I think both nuances are present in the coming of the Antichrist. As William R. Newell, that great theologian from the last century, uh, put it, uh, all satanic activities, by the way, William R. Newell is the one who wrote uh, the great hymn, At Calvary. You know, mercy there was great and grace was free. There my pardon so found liberty. I can't remember the rest of it. But anyway, great <laughs> grace message, right? What was it? You anyway, you guys probably know it better than I do. But uh, he also wrote a number of verse-by-verse -verse commentaries. But he said, all satanic activities are carried out under the double motive of ambition to rule and be worshipped, and hatred toward the one whom God has chosen to take the kingdom that Satan has usurped. So again, as we're going to see in this session, there is a cosmic struggle between God and Satan. When Satan could not have the throne in heaven, he said, then I'll take the earth. And uh, he really believes he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, this is his territory. Uh, and he thinks he's going to you know, win. He thinks it's, he's going to defeat God, and he's going to have this all his own. So key passages on the Antichrist are passages like Daniel 7, with Daniel's vision of the, the four beasts and the little horn, Daniel 9, when he talks about the 490-year plan that God outlines for him. Uh, Daniel 11, uh, from verse 36 and following, which give us more details about his blasphemous deeds, the Antichrist. Paul's passage in 2 Thess 2, uh, which we uh, just referenced a moment ago. 1 John 2 and 4, which I mentioned are the, really the foundational premise for this book. And, of course, Revelation 13, we learn a lot about this beast of the sea who makes war and demands worship. Uh, throughout Scripture, a number of terms used to describe the Antichrist. He's the little horn. He's the prince that shall come, the willful king, as I mentioned in Daniel 11:36. He's the desolator or the one who makes desolation, meaning he desecrates the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation. Paul calls him the man of sin and son of perdition. He's the lawless one. He's the beast. That's the John's name for him in the book of Revelation. And also the beast out of the sea. So if the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world, then it follows that we should see manifestations of some of the characteristics of the Antichrist around us in the world, right? So here's my sort of logical thinking and premise. When I set out to... Uh, do this study and ultimately write the book. If, as Scripture says, the Spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world, and of course he is because Scripture says it, then what we can do is we can look at the biblical teaching about the Antichrist from all those passages that I just put on the screen. And what I did was I came up with a list of characteristics of the future Antichrist. What are his actions? What are his attitudes? What are the things? How does the Scripture describe him? And then I distilled them down into seven primary categories. And then I began to say, well, if, if, that's what the anti, if that characterizes the Antichrist, and his spirit is already at work in this present age, the last hour, then if we're getting close to the return of the Lord, we ought to see an uptick in those things. That as Satan gets closer and closer to, to, to entering his endgame, global enslavement, then we ought to see some of these characteristics on the rise. And the biggest one is the spirit of pretense or deception. And so, uh, so much of the book deals with that topic. And then volume two, which hopefully will be out November, uh, December, it's well underway, is going to deal with a number of other uh, related characteristics of the Antichrist, that the spirit of which we see active 
uh, today. All kinds of things like perversion and power and pride and uh, paranormal. You know, you wonder why, you know, after decades, decades of denial, where, when people were saying the government's been studying UFOs, what they now call UAPs, for decades, since 1947, no accident there, by the way, that all this stuff started happening around the time Israel became a nation, but that's for the next book. But, uh, and the government said, no, 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 nothing to see here, nothing to see here, move, move along, you're all a bunch of tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. And then in December of 2017, the New York Times broke the story that, lo and behold, the government's been tracking UFOs since 1947. <laughs> Just like everybody said, they were under thousands of pages to a whole buildings full of data. And then you've got, you know, top level four-star admirals and others that are on record going on mainstream TV with Tucker Carlson and many others talking about seeing these things that they have no idea what they are. They have technology that is not seen anywhere on planet Earth. Uh, and they're, you know, massive threat, which is why we started the Space Force, the sixth branch of the military under the Trump administration. And of course, they all are suggesting these are little green men from another planet. No, it's dimensional. These are demonic beings. And so anyway, that's the kind of stuff that we're getting into in volume two. But that's something that we're going to see in the end times with the Antichrist is this incredible uh, otherworldliness and paranormal type activity, not just uh, UFOs, uh, uh, and but other types of things that we talk about, and we get into it in, in, in the video series. I've already touched on it in one of those videos. Uh, uh, disappearances, other weird, uh, again, paranormal type uh, activity. So, uh, so that's the premise, is that, yes, we are seeing satanic type, antichrist type activity on the rise. Again, not new. Satan's been active since he got kicked out of heaven. Uh, but it's certainly at a degree to which we've never seen before in the present uh, age. Uh, so the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and that's how we know this is uh, the last hour. So where will the Antichrist's power come from? Well, this is the beginnings of understanding the grand conspiracy. It clearly will come from Satan. Paul says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So let's think about this for just a moment. Uh, Satan, of course, is a demon, the prince of demons. Uh, he was an angel who fell, became one, part of the enemies of God in this spiritual realm. We, we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But according to the biblical record, there are only two times in human history when Satan himself, the prince of demons, indwells another human being. We know, for a matter of fact, that he indwelt Judas. And I believe, based on 2 Thess 2, he will indwell the future Antichrist. Now, what's significant about those two times? Well, the first time is in connection with Christ's first advent. So here, God, the eternal creator of the universe, who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sends his eternal Son to the earth, the devil's playground, puts on human flesh, comes into the devil's backyard, and in that moment, Satan says, I've got you. And this is my moment. This is my opportunity to finally, once and for all, win this battle. And I'm not going to delegate that to my legion of demons. I'm going to handle this one myself. And he indwelt Judas. Judas betrayed him. Satan was, or Christ was crucified, and Satan thought he had won. Of course, three days later, he shrieked in horror as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and paid the penalty for the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, <laughs> for the whole world. Amen. Right. So that was the climactic moment in human history when really the battle was won. That's when the battle was won. Satan just doesn't believe it. He knows the Bible. Knows the Bible better than most Christians, but he doesn't believe it. So he still thinks uh, he can win. The white flag of surrender is never waved by those that are truly evil. They have to be defeated. So he's been defeated, but he's continuing to fight. And so the second time, when I believe Satan will take matters into his own hands and not delegate this to one of his minions, is in connection with the second coming of Christ. When, in the lead up to the return of Christ and the... Uh, uh, someone corrected me, it, the technically we say the campaign of Armageddon, because it's not just one battle like one local little skirmish. It's a big 
a global uh, event. Um, but uh, at, at Armageddon, Christ, uh, Satan, is going to indwell the Antichrist, I mean, during that seven years, and uh, so that he can hopefully defeat Christ again. But, of course, he won't win there either. Then he's going to be, uh, of course, the Antichrist and the false prophet, kind of like the, you know, the leader and the second in command during that world global system, you know, kind of like the president and the vice president. I mean, hypothetically. Don't, don't let your mind go. I'm not making any... Predictions. I'm just saying in the office of president and vice. All right, how about Batman and Robin? Is that, okay, that's a safer analogy, right? Uh, but they're going to be cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, the lake of fire at that point. Uh, and then the Satan himself is cast into the abyss for a thousand years uh, during the millennial phase of the kingdom. But then even then he's going to be released for one final battle harness the armies of all the unbelievers who have come to be by that time uh, over a thousand years, never believe the gospel, and, and then he'll finally be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet have been for a thousand years. So that's how it ends. Satan hates to hear that because he doesn't believe it. So he, he, if he happens to be listening to this conference, which I doubt because, again, he can only be in one place at one time, and I'm sure there are far more important things for his attention to be focused on. You know, sometimes we'll say, you know, the devil attacked me or the devil's really attacking me. We're using that as sort of a metonym for the forces of evil, demons or whatever. Satan himself can only be in one place at one time. And with 7.5 billion people on the earth, I highly doubt that he would choose Grace Bible Church and the Spirit of the Antichrist Prophecy Conference uh, to focus his attention. But in any event, if it gets, if word gets back to him, that there's people out there talking about and reminding him of his demise, he's not going to be happy. Um, so that's kind of the big, uh, the big picture. Uh, but he is going to be uh, uh, destroyed at some point. So since his power, the Antichrist's power, comes from Satan, let's take a look at Satan, the great deceiver. Um, no one will have more deceptive power on the earth than the Antichrist because it comes from the liar himself. Jesus said... Uh, to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, I've written and spoken for many years about the global deception that is sweeping over the world. Uh, and uh, I call it, or I don't call it that this is their uh, term for it, the Luciferian elite. Uh, or as, as has been labeled through for the last several hundred years in the writings, the Luciferian conspiracy. But because I've talked about it so much uh, since roughly about 2007, when I woke up to the world as it really exists, people have taken to calling me a conspiracy theorist. And uh, so I want to take just a moment to talk about what that means. And first of all, I might mention that I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. <laughs> and uh, this one is true. So um, a conspiracy is simply an agreement between two or more people to commit a crime or perform some illegal, sinister, nefarious uh, deed. Uh, there's nothing inherent within the term conspiracy that implies craziness or wild speculations or tinfoil hat or anything like that. It's a, quite a normal term. In fact, 75%, roughly speaking, of all federal criminal cases involve conspiracy in the title. So we, people know what a conspiracy is. Um, so if conspiracies don't exist and are merely far-fetched machinations of the mentally ill, like uh, people would like you to believe, uh, then uh, there must be a ton of mentally ill lawyers out there because, I mean, 75% uh, actually come to think of it. I mean, maybe that's, I don't know. Do we have any lawyers here tonight? Because I'm just trying to debate whether or not to tell some lawyer jokes right about now. What's the difference between a lawyer and, and God? God doesn't think he's a lawyer. Um, how, many, how many lawyers uh, does it take to, uh, to screw in a light bulb? Three. One to climb the ladder, one to shake it, and one to sue the ladder company. Um, <laughs> all right, one more. What's the difference between a jellyfish and a lawyer? I mean, it's obvious. One's a spineless, poisonous blob. And the other is a small sea creature. So, um, <laughs> but the term conspiracy theory actually was created uh, by the CIA. 
I don't know if you realize that. This is on record, well documented. In April 1967, the CIA wrote a dispatch which coined the term conspiracy theory. And it was recommended as part of the methods for discrediting theories that contradicted the official government version of, of events. It was in the context of the Warren Commission after the JFK assassination when people were realizing this doesn't add up. And so they said, we got to somehow squelch this movement of truth. And so they, they came up with this uh, uh, document. It was stamped uh, uh, Psych, short for Psychological Operations, and CS, which was short for the CIA's Clandestine Services Unit. And this document, by the way, was exposed in response to a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act uh, request in 1976. So again, originally, conspiracy theory was a weaponized phrase used uh, to discredit all those who questioned the Warren Commission report about the assassination of JFK. But over time, the term was used again and again to discredit anyone who questions the official government narrative on any given issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a term that's discussed often in academic circles, in journals, in textbooks. It was a, it's called a psycholinguistic tool for mimetic hegemony. Now there's a mouthful. Let's break that down. Psycholinguistic, meaning using memes to advance hegemony, the, the dominance or control of an elite group, in this case the Luciferians. So it's just a tool. Uh, and this, is, this term psycholinguistic techniques is being used today as it relates to so-called fake news. That's another term that they've uh, come up with. And I'll uh, talk about that uh, uh, later in this, in this conference. But Cass Sunstein is a name you should uh, probably know. Uh, he was the administrator of White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs during the Obama administration from 2009 to 2012. And he's known for his research into linguistic thought control and subliminal indoctrination as a means of behavior modification, quote, unquote. And he promoted what is often called the nudge theory of behavior modification. By the way, he's married to Samantha Power, or last time I checked. Uh, and she was a public policy professor at Harvard and also former UN, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. So listen to what he said in his 2008 article from the Journal of Political Philosophy. Remember I told you they talk about this stuff in academic circles. It was a creation of the CIA. He said, what can government do about conspiracy theories? Well, we can readily imagine a series of possible responses. First, the government might ban conspiracy theories. Number two, government might impose some kind of tax, <laughs> financial or otherwise, on those who disseminate such uh, theories. He also recommended and implemented a program of what he termed cognitive infiltration, quote unquote, in which government paid agents would infiltrate truth movements undercover and spread misinformation to discredit them. Basically a similar technique to COINTELPRO, which I talk more about in the book. I'm not sure if we're going to get into that in this weekend, but same idea. Uh, so uh, by the way, uh, David Ray Griffin wrote an excellent book titled Cognitive Infiltration, exposing and critiquing a lot of Sunstein's views on that. But his book, Conspiracy Theories, was published by Simon & Schuster in 20, 2014. So when someone calls you a conspiracy theorist, or maybe if you use the term yourself in a pejorative way, just remember you've been victimized by a massive psycholinguistic mind control campaign. <laughs> so I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. And the Bible has a lot to say about conspiracies. Um, uh, for example, um, in the New Testament, it's the Greek word sunomasia, meaning a plan for taking secret action against someone or some institution with the implication of an oath binding the conspirators or a joint plan to devise a course of common action, often one with a harmful or evil uh, purpose. You see it used in Acts 23, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, according to Luke, who was just a conspiracy theorist. We can't listen to what Luke writes in the book of Acts, right? Uh, how about this? In Matthew 26, it doesn't use Sunamasia, but it's clearly a conspiracy. 
referring to Christ, and the chief priests and scribes and elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Well, when a group of people get together in secret and come up with a plot to do something evil, that's the textbook definition of a conspiracy. Or John 11, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Again, a conspiracy. We see the word repeatedly in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the Hebrew word kesher, an alliance, band, or conspiracy. For example, in Jeremiah, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah. I didn't know Jeremiah was a conspiracy theorist. Did you? <laughs> or 2 Kings 17, the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea. Or 2 Chronicles, after that time, uh, after the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. Same Hebrew word, Kesher. Well, what about other ancient literature? I found this one interesting. About 400 years before Christ, Thucydides, a 5th century Greek general and historian, said, A conspiracy is a body of men leagued by oath for the putting down of democracy. So what we're going to see as we go through this study is that this Luciferian conspiracy has been in play a long, long time. We know biblically it's been around for 6,000 years, but in modern times it's been around for several hundred years, and it's right in plain sight for those who take the time to read it. And I'm going to give you no shortage of quotes that, that prove that. So conspiracies are, are nothing new. Uh, they're as old as time itself and date all the way back to the original conspiracy between Lucifer and his allies to overthrow God in heaven. A thousand years before Christ, as we alluded to in the first session, uh, David, who wrote Psalm 2, even though in the Hebrew it's anonymous, we know from Acts 4 and Acts 13 that David actually wrote it. We read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Well, who's plotting a vain thing? The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed against Yahweh, they're all caps, Yahweh and His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And what are they saying as they conspire together? Well, they're saying, let us break their bonds, capital T, a reference to the Godhead, in pieces and cast away their cords from us. See, Satan hates God's sovereignty and God's control. He hates it with a loathing passion. Satan has control issues. He doesn't like that God is in control. And he wants to break those bonds and cast away those cords and take over this world for himself. I've outlined uh, the, second psalm, uh, the second psalm according to its stanzas here as referring to the Luciferian plot that we just read about, the Lord's plan, the long-awaited prince, and the lasting promise. I call this the growing global rebellion. See, if Satan is going to take over the world, which is certainly his goal, he couldn't have heaven, so he's trying to take over the earth, who is he going to work with? Well, obviously demons, we know that. But who else? I mean, is he going to work with, you know, uh, cows or oak trees? Or, I mean, he's going to work with people, human beings. And Psalm 2 talks about that, the rulers of the world that are conspiring with Satan. So, are you ready for this growing global rebellion? Again, we can't say with certainty that we're going to see it come to fruition in our day, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me, and I wouldn't bet against it at this point. I mean, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It wouldn't bother me if He came right now in the middle of this conference. I would happily trade the hours I spent preparing for this conference to see Jesus face to face. And you would happily, I promise you, trade that opportunity to hear this message for the opportunity to see Jesus. So we're not suggesting in a negative sort of way that, you know, oh, woe is me, the sky is falling. But we're saying, woe is me, the sky is falling. You better be ready. And if the Lord takes us home, praise God. We hope that happens. Um, but if he doesn't, we, got, we have to be prepared because this is clearly taught in Scripture. And you ignore it at your own uh, peril. Um, so are you ready for the growing global rebellion. Have you ever made a plan that didn't turn out like you intended? You know, maybe you spent weeks or even months strategizing, organizing, and planning, and you rolled it out and it fails. There are many 
famous examples of this type of noteworthy failure. Maybe you remember some of these, like the Sony Betamax, you know. Sony launched this in, in the 1970s, uh, and it was a laughing stock of the video cassette industry, a big failure. Or what about this one in the 1980s? Uh, new Coke. Remember, after testing this new recipe with a couple hundred thousand subjects, they, people said, oh, well, we prefer the New Coke. So they unveiled New Coke in 1985. But product loyalty and the traditionalism and old-fashioned nature of people with their love for Coca-Cola ended up costing the company $4 million in development and a loss of $30 million in product they couldn't sell, becoming one of the most famous failures in history. Or what about this? 1983. Lisa was the first desktop with a mouse. It cost $10,000, which is equivalent to about $24,000 today. In other words, about the price of a loaf of bread last time I checked. But anyway, um, it had one megabyte uh, of RAM. Um, but uh, consumers weren't as interested as Apple anticipated, and it was a case of over-promising and under-delivering. And uh, I've just got to show you this short one-minute ad, an original television ad for the Apple Lisa from 1983, starring none other than Kevin Costner in an early role. So watch this. This is the advertisement for the Apple Lisa. people spend their time has very little to do with the clock. even know what to say. Does that make you want to run out and buy an Apple Lisa? I mean, I guess the point of the commercial is if you buy a Macintosh, well, number one, you'll have a loyal dog. Uh, you'll get up bright and early and take a walk before breakfast. Um, I, I don't know really what, how they were marketing that. It's not surprising me that I guess it, uh, it failed. But I also, did you notice, I thought it was strange that, and again, this was the first computer with a mouse, that Kevin Costner is using his left hand even though the mouse was on the right. Like he didn't know, no one knew how to use a mouse yet, I guess, at that point. It's very interesting. Uh, another famous one was the Edsel, 1957. So, um, Jeremy, do you remember that one? <laughs> By the way, I have to clarify, his comment uh, when he introduced me in the first session about 20 pounds ago, he was talking about himself. He said, I thought he was talking about me. I thought it was hilarious. I'm actually going to use that next time I introduce somebody. But he wanted me to clarify he wasn't necessarily uh, meaning to talk about me. So I've clarified. But it was still hilarious, I thought. Uh, how about this one? Uh, this is a quote from uh, Robert Burns, who was a Scottish poet and a lyricist. He's widely regarded as the national poet of of Scotland and uh, his influence on U the U.S. Uh, literature realm was seen in his choice by John Steinbeck to name his 1937 novel Of Mice and Men, which is taken from a Robert Burns poem, the last stanza of his poem To a Mouse. And the last stanza reads, The best laid schemes, O mice and men, gang aft aglay, which translated means the best laid schemes, O mice and men, uh, still go wrong. And uh, to paraphrase that quote, I think what Psalm 2 was telling us is that Satan's plans, no matter how well thought out, how determined, how many legions of demons he has at his disposal, are no match uh, for the Lord's plan. So the Luciferian plot is no match for the Lord's plan. Satan and his demons, the best laid plans of devils and demons, will not uh, succeed. So this is an exciting time as we think about the outline there from Psalm 2. Uh, we, we know that someday the long-awaited prince is going to come and the lasting promise will be 
inaugurated in the coming kingdom someday. And we need to remember that the Luciferian plot is no match for the Lord's plan. So when we talk about the Luciferian conspiracy, this is what we mean. Satan, demons, and human agents working together to try to overthrow God, the creator of the universe, and usher in a one-world, satanically-led system. And throughout the ages, we've seen God has His chosen people, His envoys in any given age, whether that was, you know, uh, Adam and Eve, or uh, Noah, or Abraham, or Moses, or the children of Israel, or the church today. Uh, and, and, and Satan's coming against all of them, and always has been, but it's reaching new heights today. And we're going to see as we take a closer look at these human agents and how, uh, how they play a role. But we know that this battle is largely an unseen battle with Satan's uh, demons, his fallen angels that are working with him, because Paul said that our struggle is not against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So, what we want to do is look at some of the manifestations of this demonic, satanic, Luciferian spirit and ask, are we seeing any of these characteristics today? Is the stage being set for the rise of the Antichrist and his taking control of a one-world system, either inaugurating it uh, or uh, taking the helm of it if it's already in place? And so, I'm going to move now into several of the latter chapters in the book that we're talking about or in the uh, DVD series, several of the latter videos in the series, and talk about uh, this idea of the spirit of pretense and some of the deception. So ask yourself, have you been uh, deceived? Uh, we know that Satan is doing, you know, that the future Antichrist is going to work according to all lying wonders and deception. Uh, we know that it, with unrighteous deception, he's going to deceive the world at that time. Uh, in Revelation, he's described as deceiving those who dwell on the earth. And, you know, it's interesting that in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, which is that sermon that he gave from the Mount of Olives the day before he was betrayed in the garden. So Thursday night of Passion Week, he's in the upper room. And he washes the disciples' feet. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He talks about uh, the, the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the day before, after he's overturned the tables of the money changers, after he's cursed the fig tree, uh, he, he comes out of the temple and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you'll never see me again until you cry, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the disciples, getting a little antsy, seeing that, think, um, Wow, I mean... What is he talking about? The kingdom is going to come any second. He's going to throw off the shackles of Rome, usher in the kingdom, and I don't know really what he means by that. And so nervously they begin to point to the temple and they, they, they say, Lord, look how beautiful this temple is, as if to say, isn't it going to be great when you take the throne here any day now, any second now, you know? And that's when Jesus famously said, listen, not one stone will be left upon another. Uh, and, and now the disciples are really freaked out because how can you have a kingdom without a temple? And so that's when they, almost in an ecstatic utterance, state, Lord, when will these things happen? When, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, this doesn't add up. Tell us when the kingdom's going to come. That's essentially what they were asking. And then Matthew records his answer in Matthew 24 and 25. It's in uh, uh, Luke uh, is 21, and it's in Mark 13. But Matthew has the most detailed version of it. And it's interesting that Jesus begins his response with the phrase, Be not deceived, or let no one deceive you. And then repeatedly throughout the message, he's he tells them not to be deceived. He's speaking to the future nation of Israel that will be alive when he comes back. Which, I don't understand how preterists and other that don't take the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical fashion, don't, why they have a problem with that? Because every prophet spoke to a generation in context about things that would happen to a future generation. I mean, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, said the virgin will conceive and have a child. Nobody that was alive with, with uh, Isaiah saw that, <laughs> right? And every, the nature of prophecy is you're speaking to a representative people about a future event that will happen in God's plan of the ages. And so, Jesus was speaking about, he's answering their question. 
when are you going to come back and how will we know that it's getting close? Well, when you see these things, and then he begins to outline in perfect harmony with the book of Revelation and Daniel, whom he even quotes by name. He mentions Daniel by name in the Olivet Discourse. He begins to outline the seven-year tribulation period that will lead up to the return of Christ. And so it's no accident then, since deception is getting worse and worse, and the gathering cloud of deception is getting darker and more ominous, that in that final seven-year period, Jesus repeatedly cautions against being deceived. Because um, believe it or not, even with all of the signs that he outlined and all of the biblical prophecy that is so clear, many Jews during that future seven-year period will nevertheless be deceived and take the mark of the beast and not believe the gospel. And, and it sounds hard to believe, and people often ask me, how could they have missed it? And the answer is, is how did they miss the first advent? I mean, they were clearly told a virgin would conceive and have a child to be born in Bethlehem. How many virgins gave birth in Bethlehem? I mean, I don't know how confused they must have been. Well, it's deception. And so in the same way, they will be deceived many in the second time around at Christ's uh, second coming. So deception, uh, and in our final session Sunday morning in worship, I'm going to talk about how to avoid being deceived. And we're going to go back to Genesis 3 and look at Satan's M.O., his anatomy of deception, because he's not creative. He wants to be creative because he wants to be God, but he's not creative. So he's using the same old methods today that he used 6,000 years ago. And uh, we're going to kind of give you some uh, points about how to avoid uh, deception. Uh, but deception is really what this is all about. And so the rest of our time this weekend, we're going to look at some manifestations of this spirit of pretense, I call it, or the spirit of, uh, of deception. Um, so, so let's take a look at this quote from one of the leading Satanists, Manly P. Hall, who said, quote, There are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth, and men are but marionettes dancing with invisible one, while the invisible ones pull the strings. And that quote, and, and by the way, um, uh, Manly P. Hall is most famous for his work, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, an encyclopedic outline of Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian symbolic philosophy. And uh, again, a leading uh, Satanist. I mean, uh, he looks like a Satanist. <laughs> I mean, just being honest. Um, but uh, this quote and some of his research was the inspiration for the first book I wrote on this subject back in 2012, which was called The Great Last Day's Deception. And that's why I chose as the cover art a marionette. Because again, things are seldom as they appear. And uh, so we see lots of examples of this deception. And one of the key agents of deception and manifestations of the spirit of pretense is Operation Mockingbird. How many of you have heard of Operation Mockingbird, just out of curiosity? <clears throat> well, great. Only like five or six of you, which thrills me because I love exposing people to this. This was a CIA large-scale operation that began in the early 50s in which they tried to manipulate news media, including print media and television and radio media, <clears throat> for all kinds of purposes. What it would do is it would fund student and cultural organizations and send agents in to work for these magazines. <clears throat> and many of the leading American journalists uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and on up into this day, even though, as we're going to see, it, allegedly they put a stop to it at the church committee hearings. They exposed it, admitted it, and, and then uh, George H.W. Bush said, well, we're going to we're not, you know, we're going to not stop it entirely, but we're just going to make it voluntary, which is to say it's still happening, just in a different way. Uh, but Operation Mockingbird really is, it's, you have to understand it to really understand what you're watching when you watch TV. And again, if you think uh, that, you know, there's a difference between Fox News and CNN, you've been, you've already been deceived. It's all part of the same group. The entire media is controlled. And maybe they're all reading a script. They're all saying the same thing, even down to local levels. In fact, this next clip, which is, uh, let's see, two minutes and 40 seconds, which I took from the documentary Out of Shadows, really is profound in exposing. And there have been several of these. You can just go on your favorite search engine and, and look for them, and you'll find several others that show the same thing to show you how much the media is simply reading from a script. So watch this, it's about Operation Mockingbird.
There's no question about the fact that Mockingbird is real. It started out paying journalists in major media, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, to print fake stories uh, that the CIA wanted in the press and fake interviews. And this was revealed in the church committee. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal? We do have people who submit pieces to other two American journals. And of course, then the CIA destroyed the rest of the files, which is what they do. George H.W. Bush came out and finally made the statement about Mockingbird. Well, we're going to officially stop the Mockingbird program. The CIA will no longer pay journalists to write stories. From now on, the program is voluntary, which means Mockingbird continues today. When's the last time you've seen a mainstream media outlet do a serious investigative report on the actions of the CIA? There's a reason for that. This would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. And we're looking at that very carefully. And that continues today? Well, I, yeah, I would think probably for a reporter it would continue today, but because of all of the revelations of the period of the 1970s, uh, it seems to me that a reporter's got to be much more circumspect in doing it now, or he runs the risk of uh, at least being looked at with considerable disfavor by the public. I think you've got to be much more careful about it. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 So, there is something about the way the CIA has been functioning that is casting a shadow on our historic position of freedom, and I feel we need to correct it. So, what you need to understand is, is mind control is a huge part of the Luciferian agenda. We know from Scripture that it's a battle for the mind. Satan's been trying to control the mind. And so... They are using, in America, mainstream media, not just in America, but for their purposes, America is what's standing in the way. They're trying to bring us down. Propaganda through mainstream media. I mean, you have to wonder, with nearly 300 million Americans, on any given day, you'd think there'd be hundreds, if not thousands, of worthy stories and news events that need to be reported. And yet, every day, they're covering the same stuff, right? It's a fake left-right uh, a paradigm. And uh, it's been controlled. It's been that way for sure since the 50s. And by the way, in the book, when I deal with Operation Mockingbird, I go into much greater detail. I actually give a lot of quotes from the church committee and kind of give you some background and other examples of it. Obviously, we can't go into as much detail in a session. But uh, here's, a, here's a very salient quote from uh, Walter Cronkite, Cronkite referring to evangelical conservatives who think that Christ is the only one who can preside over a one-world government. And listen to what he says. And this, by the way, was when he was receiving a, an award at the World Federation uh, Ceremony of World Government. So th that's the context here. And listen to what he says. Your leader, Pat Robertson, has written in a book a few years ago that we should have a world government, but only when the Messiah arrives. He wrote, and literally, any attempt to achieve world order before that time must be the work of the devil. Well, join me. I, I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan, he said. They mock, they mock us. And then later in that same presentation, the first lady, Hillary Rodham Clinton at the time, uh, was streamed in to say this. Congratulating, like Cronkite. I to bring you a message from the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Good evening and congratulations, Walter. I'm receiving the World Federalist Association's Global Governance Award. 
For more than a generation in America, it wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. It wasn't the news until Walter Cronkite told us it was the news. That's right, it wasn't. So you just believe everything you see on TV. They wouldn't lie to you, would they? Would they really lie to you? William Casey, who was the director of the CIA from 81 to 87 during the Reagan administration, and of course oversaw the entire uh, intelligence apparatus, uh, this is a quote of his from 1981. By the way, like so many, uh, he died in very suspicious circumstances. We don't have time to get into that, but I encourage you to, to look that up. But he said in 1981, we will know our disinformation campaign is complete. I, you saw that quote in the Out of Shadows clip. When everything the American public believes is a lie. Everything. So these are really weapons of mass deception doesn't mean that every, it's not monolithic, it doesn't mean that every single reporter is in on it, right? But they don't have to be in on it. In fact, they, it's called controlled opposition. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the Hegelian dialectic and how they use that uh, to advance their agenda. Uh, but as a whole, these are weapons of mass deception. My first full-time church, by the way, when Wendy and I were married, was in a rural Midwest farming community in Illinois. And I was 25 when we started, and I learned a lot about farming. I would talk to some of the old timers in the church and some of the farmers. Some of them had big farm uh, operations. And uh, one of the things that I learned was that in the old day, this is what a manure spreader looked like. It was a horse-drawn manure spreader. And then in the industrial age, it, it got a little more fancy and automated with the industrial age manure spreader. But uh, today, this is what it looks like. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and since we're talking about harmful poisons, remember, harmful if swallowed. So I'd just like to close out with some salient uh, quotes here. This is from Gary Allen and none dare call it conspiracy. He says, we believe the picture painters of the mass media are artfully creating landscapes for us which deliberately hide the real picture. David Rockefeller, we're going to talk a lot about him this week, and so we've already mentioned him. He said, we are grateful. This is at a CFR, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is at a Trilateral Commission meeting in 1991. He said, we're grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. Going back to World War II. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject to the bright lights of publicity during those years. They were conspiring as part of Operation Mockingbird to advance an agenda. Perhaps that's why Thomas Jefferson said people who don't read the newspapers know more than those who do. Because <laughs> it's more dangerous to be misinformed than uninformed. Uh, it's astounding how many people blindly follow the mainstream narrative, including even many Christians. Twain said it's easier to make people, how, how easy it is to make people believe a lie and how hard it is to undo that work again. It's often paraphrased as it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. But this is the actual quote. Leonardo da Vinci, and I include this in the opening epigraph of my book, said there are three classes of people, those who see, those who see when they're shown, and those who don't see. So I want you to ask yourself, which one are you as we go through this material this weekend? If we're to have any hope against the rising tide of pretense that will only get worse between now and the rapture, we've got to learn to study the facts for ourselves. Yeah, because most Christians only have an appetite for chicken soup for the soul sound bites, most Christians are deceived about the way things really are. 18th century British theologian William Paley put it this way, there is a principle which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance, and this principle is contempt prior to examination. I've been writing and teaching about this long enough now that I'm actually starting to see some people come back around who, you know, 10 years ago, I was actually censored from certain conferences or I would have conference uh, coordinators kind of question some of the things that I said or edit them out of the DVDs that came out of the videos. And now they're coming back around saying, you know what? Wow, I had no idea. This is altered. Um, we're going to talk about one in the last session tomorrow that uh, 
I think if you haven't already studied it, will will really blow you away, called geoengineering. Um, Carl Sagan put it this way in his work, The Demon Haunted World. Quote, one of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. Why is it that all of these atheistic, you know, unbelievers seem to understand what most Christians can't understand? Uh, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, None are more helplessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. Of course, the problem with deception is that it leads to destruction. As Voltaire reminded us, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And Hitler is a case in point. In Mein Kampf, he said, The principle which is quite true in itself is that in the big lie, there's always a certain force of credibility. Again, often paraphrased or misquoted, the bigger the lie, the more easily it is believed. But that's, this is what he actually said, same idea, the big lie concept. You know, so, I mean, it works, right? I mean, imagine if, uh, let's see, when was, uh, or let's just say, let's imagine in the 15th century, so the 1400s, you and I are sitting at a Starbucks having coffee, and uh, I say to you, you know what, I bet you one day everybody on earth is going to think they evolved from a monkey and that their grandparents were apes. You would look at me and think, I, I am nuts. There's no way that could possibly be true. Nobody would believe such an absurd, ridiculous lie. But sprinkling in a little compulsory government schooling, gain control of the textbook companies, gain control of the teaching institutions in the early 20th century. We throw a little money at it from the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. Fast forward a century. Everybody believes evolution except for a few biblicists in the vast minority. <laughs> right? I mean, just stop and think about the absurdity of, of that. And yet people believe it. Right? Lenin put it this way, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. And uh, Eric Arthur Blair, better known by his pen name George Orwell, said, In an age of universal deceit, revealing the truth is a revolutionary act. So we have much more to say about the spirit of pretense tomorrow. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll get to all of these things, but I definitely have highlighted a few of them that I want uh, to talk about. But uh, any questions before we wrap up for tonight? Any thoughts or questions about... Anything we've talked about? Yes? On the first slide you showed a circle and there was an eye in there. Same eye as on a dollar bill. What does that mean? Which slide? The first one of the night? Yeah. Of, the, of this session. Of this session. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here. What are conspiracy theories? So, yeah, the all-seeing eye. These, uh, the uh, Luciferians are big, big, big into uh, uh, symbolism. And it goes back to, you know, the Illuminati and then the Freemasonry before that. I'm speaking in Tulsa next month on uh, whose fingerprints are on the founding of America. And I'm going to talk about God's fingerprints clearly on the founding of this country. But I'm also going to talk about Satan's fingerprints on the founding of this country. And people have no idea about some of the beliefs of some of our founding fathers. Um, so, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, the all-seeing eye is a very famous, uh, you know, Luciferian symbol again. It speaks to global control, a prison planet, those types of types of things. Somebody else? Yes. I have one more question. Almighty God, all-knowing, all-powerful Creator, why did He create things? Well, that's the age-old question that uh, Paul tells us in Romans eleven. Who, Romans eleven? Who has the mind of God? Who can understand His? His ways, but he created angels like men with free will. Uh, otherwise, it would be just a bunch of autonomous robots, right? And we chose, I know you're asking about angels, but similarly, we chose to rebel, and Satan, with his free will, chose to rebel. And uh, it's God's plan of the ages. It's going to come full circle back to redemption. Um, and uh, But we'll have to ask him when we get there. I mean, I guess he... 
you know, could have just stayed with He, uh, the eternal Son and the eternal Spirit in eternity outside of time, space, and matter, but He chose to create time, space, and matter, and, and the rest is literally history. Anybody else? Yes? But how would we grow if we didn't have Satan? How would we what? If we didn't have Satan? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said faith. I'm sorry, I'm half deaf. How would we grow if we didn't have faith too? But that's, yeah. Uh, so the comment is, how would we grow if we didn't have Satan? Yeah, I mean, obviously we are fallen beings and the part of, we have to be redeemed uh, through faith alone in Christ alone. And then it's part of growing and conforming to the image of Christ in the, in the progressive sanctification process. And like I kind of said at the outset, if there weren't bad news, then the good news would, the good news would have no context. So... Uh, but I tell you, I'm kind of I'm kind of tired of the bad news. I don't know about you. I'm ready, ready for the, the, the sky to split and Christ to come back. But but we need to be prepared uh, because if the Lord has us here longer, we we want to, you know, get off the tracks before the train comes. So, okay, awesome. I'll be glad to stick around and answer questions at the table. Encourage you to stop by, check out the book, uh, or and or the DVD uh, series. And I'd love, love for you to kind of study this more uh, on your own. Thank you, guys. So what time tomorrow? 1.30, did we say? Yeah, 1.30 tomorrow. I'm going to be uh, uh, talking about globalism, transhumanism, and depopulation. Uh, I'm going to be talking about several other manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. And I'm going to talk about some of the human leaders, co-conspirators in this, uh, in this uh, conspiracy. So hope to see you back tomorrow. Thank you guys.